So Courtney, why should the listeners tune into the show today? Because we are at the precipice of a global, you know, transformation in consciousness and in mental health and in how we treat ourselves and other people. Psychedelics are going to be and continue to be a catalyst for that, you know, massive transformation. So I think if you're interested in improving your consciousness and health and, you know, sort of global humanity dynamics and psychedelics are something you should take a closer look at. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Just wanted to let you guys know that we are going to be, NeuroFlex is going to be at the Canadelic Conference coming up in Miami at the beginning of February, February 2nd through 4th. We'll have a booth there, be doing brain maps and um, brain health education. So uh, come say hi if you are going to be at the conference or uh, you know, come to the uh, conference if you're in the South Florida area and interested in learning about your brain and psychedelics. So on to today's episode, we have a very special guest, Courtney Barnes. Courtney is licensed to practice law in California, Colorado, and Texas. And Courtney serves as the counsel for Feldman Legal Advisors, the general counsel for SPOR, and as a policy advisor for Decriminalized Nature, and an advisory board member for Heroic Hearts Project. She was a lead drafter of the nation's first voter-initiated psilocybin policy reform ordinance and has unparalleled experience drafting local psychedelics policy reform measures. So, Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So tell me a little, what, what was your path to you know, becoming interested in psychedelics and then in terms of the, the reform of the, the legal landscape of psychedelics? Sure. So there's a couple of different points in my life that you could say this originated from, but my father actually was a DEA agent. So I was born overseas in Bangkok, Thailand. He was focused on sort of the illicit trafficking of opium out of Asia to the United States. So never really, you know, preached about drugs and, and you know, was pretty cool in high school and all of that. But I always have had this exposure to the war on drugs, and it definitely sort of has been a part of my DNA and upbringing. And as I got older, he actually got sick and was diagnosed with throat cancer from his service in the Vietnam War. And this was about the time when sort of medical cannabis was coming to conversation, but he refused to try it just out of the principle of illegality. And that sort of his death and sort of that natural medicine movement blooming across sort of the West Coast and um, other states sparked my interest in it. And I got really lucky going to law school at the University of Denver, where I got paired up with a law firm that was very focused on policy reform and actually wrote the law that legalized adult use cannabis in Colorado. And I was an unpaid intern there, saw the potential, thought it you know, was absolutely a dream job and ended up staying there for five and a half years where I got a lot of the policy experience that I use now today to help nonprofits and advocacy organizations. So you were actually part of the, the Colorado initiative and that was, was Colorado, it was the first or second state. I forgot if Washington or Colorado was first in terms so of legalizing. Colorado cannabis, adult use cannabis was the first state. They were the first. Um, okay. Yes. And I joined 
that firm in 2015, so it was right during implementation. And then Denver, Colorado was the first city to decriminalize mushrooms, psilocybin, and I was the lead drafter of that initiative along with Josh Kappel and some others. And so that was sort of the catalyst of the psychedelics local policy reform movement we're seeing it take place across the United States. Right, right. So how how do you sort of contrast the experience of like the, the cannabis reform legalization versus now what we're seeing with like the psychedelics? I think cannabis has done a lot of positive things for the drug policy reform movement as a whole. While when it comes to regulation and creating an industry, there's a lot of things that we can still do differently and better for cannabis. But as far as showing the world that, hey, maybe the government wasn't absolutely correct in how they categorize these compounds and sort of opening not only that like, you know, gateway, but people's minds and perceptions to just, you know, being op- being more open-minded about how drugs are regulated and, and the potential that perhaps some of these regulatory structures need revisiting and are outdated. So cannabis sort of originated in that same grassroots ground up movement at the local level with decriminalization, then this sort of patchwork state domino effect. And that's where we're seeing with psychedelics where we had the first city in Denver in 2019 passing that decriminalization ordinance and now we have 17 cities across the country that have passed some sort of psychedelics related drug policy reform legislation which is pretty impressive for you know under three years so we're moving quite along but I do think cannabis showed us that sort of creative pathway forward instead of waiting for the federal government to do something you know, showing people that we can really make an impact from this grassroots local movement. And for the listeners, can you kind of explain like what specifically it means when, you know, a drug is decriminalized, like say in a specific city or state? Ooh, that's a great question. That actually makes me have to clarify my language. So at the Put very simply, drugs are regulated primarily at the federal and the state level. So drugs aren't really regulated at the city town level. Um, You know, there is local law enforcement that enforces laws, but the Controlled Substances Act where sort of all of these drug regulations exist is at the state and federal level. So technically, there is no technical decriminalization at the local level because drugs just aren't regulated there. What is more accurate to say is that these local cities have passed a deprioritization of law enforcement um, initiative or prohibiting use of funds. So these these ballot initiatives and ordinances and resolutions state that the city has a better use of its law enforcement resources than arresting people or adults for nonviolent drug offenses. And in many cases, it also has a provision that says the city cannot use funds to arrest or prosecute these people. But technically you could still get arrested under state or federal law. So it's not like a get out of jail free card, but in practicality, we are seeing a significant reduction in arrests and it has the same effect as decriminalization without that um, sort of black letter protection. But to zoom back out to answer your kind of academic question of what's the difference between decriminalization and legalization, Um, that's a great question. So legalization is actually the authorization of conduct. So let's say 
we will authorize the you know production of cannabis and sale of cannabis pursuant to a state license if you have that license you are actually allowed to do that there's no penalties associated with engaging that conduct decriminalization is the removal of criminal penalties from associated conduct so let's say they decriminalize decriminalize the possession of a, a gram of mushrooms uh, or psilocybin then that would no longer be a criminal offense you would no longer be at risk of going to jail and being criminally prosecuted and having a criminal record for engaging in possession but you could still be fined. You can still have to do community service. It's not technically like allowed. It's just no longer criminalized. So that's the way to think of it is at a baseline in the policy reform movement, we want decriminalization everywhere. No one should go to jail for possessing or using plant medicine. Agreed. But yes. And then that's like easy. You know, I, I hope that everyone can agree with that. When we get into legalization, that's where we get into all these tricky questions of, you know, what does a license look like? What's exactly allowed? How much? Who gets to do that? And and that's where we're just sort of entering this new world of regulatory access with uh, Colorado and Oregon passing. But neither of them have, you know, really implemented yet. So it's going to be very interesting to see in 2023 as as Oregon really, you know, starts to accept and issue licenses. Right, right. Because I think that's another important like distinction that like decriminalization doesn't just allow anyone to just set up a, a business selling mushrooms on, on the corner. Even though I know, uh, I don't know if you saw, there was like a, a, a business, I think like a dispensary in Portland that just like sold mushrooms openly, like uh, maybe it was in the news like a month or so ago. I mean, they got shut down within within a week or so, but there was like a line wrapping around the street corner of people just like waiting to to go into this dispensary to get mushrooms. It's true. Um, there in Canada as well, there are a lot of shops popping up and that is sort of what we saw with cannabis. People were being bold and you know, taking a stance and, and willing to be an example. But as a lawyer, yes, it is not legal. And decriminalization is, yes, it's not authorization to do anything commercial. And and actually, you know, just as a less than fun or fun fact, um, all of the 17 cities that have passed decriminalization or deprioritization legislation don't allow commercial activity. So it's not contemplated. Oregon and um, Colorado will be the first states to allow the manufacture and sale of psilocybin mushrooms um, initially. But... Again, as I mentioned, Oregon's just now accepting applications and Colorado won't be through that process until next year, I think, at least. And eventually, once once this all takes place, the applications get processed and there start being like businesses that are um, you know, producing these products. Like, is anyone going to be able to like adults like is it going to be similar to cannabis where you can just go into a dispensary in a state where it's legal, present your ID and. You know, you can get whatever you want, or is it is it going to look different? Unfortunately, it will be different. It is similar in many regards to medical cannabis, but you're not going to be able to take anything home. So in Oregon and initially Colorado, Colorado has a bit more flexibility for future changes, but um, you will go to a licensed healing center and you'll be able to purchase psilocybin for use on site with the supervised and licensed facilitator. So you can't just go buy your chocolate bar and bring it home, but 
you will be able to purchase it legally if so long as you're an adult and then i believe the minimum like wait time or supervision time is an hour and that probably is dependent on dosing um so it you know technically you could do a small microdose or something there but you wouldn't be able to leave you'd have to have that experience under supervision and so it doesn't really make sense it's, it's really more formulated towards having those higher dose um, transformational you know healing journeys where you'll have someone to kind of guide you through the process and then provide you with that you know post and uh, pre and post care um but you don't need a particular indication or illness or you know prescription diagnosis you can go for whatever reason you'd like so long as you're 21 years of age and older okay so that it's interesting that sort of almost a hybrid i guess a little bit of yeah. like recreational and medical because i like get you know like uh ketamine clinics which like ketamine is like a legal um you know i guess not a classic psychedelic but has psychedelic properties right um, but someone needs a, my understanding is they need a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or a qualifying condition to be able to do ketamine, like say uh, an intravenous injection at one of these clinics. So is it, um, is it, I mean, it, you think we're going to see like ketamine clinics, like expanding their offerings in terms of being able to offer mushrooms or MDMA once they become legalized, or are they going to kind of be two separate things? I think there are a lot of operators, both in cannabis and ketamine, you know, these are kind of your trailblazers in the mental health um, drug space that are interested in that business concept. They'd like to be able to provide as many different modalities as they can legally. What's tricky is um, because ketamine is a schedule three controlled substance. So you are allowed to prescribe it and it can be prescribed off label, you know, in the, in the doctor's best judgment that giving it to you for this purpose would outweigh the risks of giving it to you for that purpose, even though that's not what it's FDA approved for. It still goes through that DEA control regulation um, and supervision and security kind of ecosystem. So I believe there will definitely be ketamine providers that will administer MDMA legal place that that doesn't really work so um you want to keep those totally separate got it got it there, there was just a glitch for like maybe 15 20 seconds in the audio okay. there um can you, can you hear me now i, can I can't sort of that okay sure yeah so, yeah if you would mind. yeah so the question was about whether ketamine licensed ketamine clinics would be interested or are interested in getting into the psilocybin and um, you know other psychedelic space and that's absolutely correct there are definitely a lot of operators that would love to expand their modality offerings what is important though is that ketamine is a schedule three so it's controlled substance so it's regulated by the dea and you need to have a dea permit to handle ketamine psilocybin and mdma um primarily psilocybin are going is going through two regulatory pathways so we're having the state level state legal but federally illegal akin to cannabis um regulatory structures created in oregon and colorado 
And then you also will have in a couple of years, you know, Compass is, is working through that process, I think is the furthest along. Psilocybin will be available for uh, therapy assisted treatments at the FDA approved level. So it'll be FDA approved for treatment resistant depression initially and then other indications. So I definitely see psilocybin in its FDA approved um, form once that happens being able to be offered in a ketamine clinic, which is also DEA regulated, but it's difficult to operate a federally legal, federally regulated drug administration business with a state legal, but federally illegal business. It, does that make sense? So the federal and federal match, but state and federal don't match because, you know, we're trying to avoid the DEA at the state level, um, whereas they're an integral part of that regulatory process of when you get into federal drugs, federally approved drugs. Right. And I, I mean, I think that just illustrates the complexity of, of like just the legal landscape of psychedelics in general. And I think it confuses a lot of people. Um, I mean, it uh, it seems very complex, like. What, what do you feel like uh, for you, you know, with, with your work, what do you feel like are, are some of the, the biggest challenges in your work to, you know, you know, uh, reform psychedelic drug policy? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I think what big picture, as far as the theme of the biggest difficulty that comes with, you know, my vision for the future, and how drugs are regulated is that the Controlled Substances Act, so the federal and state you know, drug regulatory foundation, it was created in 1970. It only has five categories of drugs or you know, five different control levels for literally every psychoactive compound that <laughs> exists on the planet. And schedule one is the most restrictive it's based on essentially abuse potentials so you know these drugs are deemed to have no medical value they're not safe for use under medical supervision um the potential for abuse is high and there's like you know no do demonstrated medical use which is just crazy but once you go up the scale from two through five you have less controls but it's really all based on abuse potential we know that your classical psychedelics really don't have any dependence liability. They're not addictive. They don't fit in schedule one to begin with, but they don't fit in schedule two, three, four, or five either. So it's really trying to create a world and in, in that local state, you know, grassroots up movement is how we're able to do this. That's that's a more creative approach for how we should regulate psychedelics because on top of this sort of rigid framework that doesn't work we have so many different uses, right? We've had thousands and thousands of years of ancestral and religious and spiritual use. And they are the ones that have really, you know, brought these psychedelics and compounds um, to be accessible to us in this modern day and age. And we need to respect that lineage and, and those and those intended uses. And then we have this kind of, you know, state level regulatory access model, which we want to create, which I think will heal a lot more people will be likely less expensive than a federally approved drug and, um, you know, is equally important. And then we have the FDA drug approval path, which has always been here and is always going to be there. Um, and there's a segment of the population that's only going to access psychedelics if they're FDA approved and in a clinical setting too. So that's all important. But 
we're trying to create a new sort of world that encompasses all of these different pathways um, in a world that's already been operating with all of its rules and you know check marks and and boxes that we have to try to fit into. So it's really the big structural issue. And um, you know, as we talk about each level of government and the different opportunities, you see that it's like we're just trying to create um, a box that we we should be making a new regulatory structure entirely for psychedelics as opposed to trying to fit them within the one that already exists but we're doing our best <laughs> yeah right right so and i know like i i think i was at a, a psychedelic panel um in miami uh, led by I, um, dustin robinson and he was talking i think about um there had just been something in the news in terms of i think in in the state of florida uh, there was a ballot initiative that de uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it deschedulized some of the novel, uh, novel psychedelic compounds, like such as like 5-MeO-DMT and some other ones similar to that. Like, is that descheduling something that can be done? So I believe, and I could be incorrect, um, there was a DEA action to schedule, I think, half a dozen or so um new like psychedelic compounds so they weren't on the controlled substance list already and they deliver some of those same sort of effects and there was a lawsuit filed to stop the dea from just scheduling them through their kind of quick and easy we're going to do this process and saying hey wait you guys haven't followed all the rules you don't you know this isn't appropriate and they actually won. So they were able to prevent the DEA, at least initially, from scheduling those compounds that would be these like new novel molecules, or um, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the correct term is for it, but they were able to prevent that. So it wasn't descheduling in the sense of removing, um, but they were able to prevent them from being scheduled, which is important. That's the one that I've heard of. Descheduling, yeah. you could potentially do at the legislative level but it would be really difficult the only thing we've kind of seen that happen with is um hemp so marijuana was defined as you know all parts of the cannabis plant except for seeds and stems sterilized seeds and stems etc and so technically it encompassed hemp as a part of the cannabis plant and they the congress was able to remove hemp from that definition um and so that's kind of an implicit descheduling, but otherwise there hasn't been really a lot of precedent of being able to pull that off, but we're trying. And what you're referring to there is that, was that the farm bill of mm -hmm. like 2018? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The 2018 farm bill was uh, the U.S. federal law that created a domestic hemp production uh, program in the United States that was commercialized and removed, changed the definition of marijuana and the Controlled Substances Act to exclude, you know, cannabis under 0.3% THC. So it's, yeah. it was an implicit descheduling. So it shows that we know how to do it if we want to, but um, what we're likely to see is this slow molecule or compound by compound FDA approval happen. So, you know, Compass's psilocybin is going to be FDA approved and available for prescription or, you know, in, in um, assist, uh, assisted use. But psilocybin as its own compound, as it's scheduled in the Controlled Substances Act, that won't likely be rescheduled. Um, it's it's usually that proprietary formula. 
but it remains to be seen because the beautiful thing about psychedelics is you don't need to make a new compound that's proprietary. They work just as they were created by nature. So hopefully we'll at least start to see movement from these drug trials that shows that they have medical value. And then it's still likely going to be this patchwork um, local and state movement that's going to push the needle when it comes to, you know, general perspective of these compounds throughout the United States and, and, and getting, um, you know, in a matter of 20 years, we went from total illegality of cannabis to, you know, over 75% of the population being in favor of reform. So it shows what potential we have, but we have a long way to go. Right. Yeah. And, and I wanted to talk more about cannabis and specifically like states in which it's still illegal where you can't go into a dispensary and just purchase, you know, classic like Delta nine THC, you know, a state like Florida, it's like, there's all of these different products of, you know, Delta eight and Delta 10. And they're like all of these million sort of variations of THC that are very psychoactive. I think some not as psychoactive as conventional Delta nine THC, some that are actually more psychoactive. So it seems kind of bizarre that like that would be able to be happening. Is that something that you think like, uh, the government is going to be cracking down upon? Or is that going to be able to, to still exist going forward in states where, you know, cannabis is illegal? So it's, you know, your classic case of industry always being ahead of regulation. And technically we have the Controlled Substance Analog Act to try to get in front of these things. So they have a pretty broad definition that's essentially if it looks like the drug a scheduled drug, you know, molecularly and has a substantially similar effect, then it can be treated as a scheduled compound. Um, and that was passed to prevent scientists from tinkering with drugs and adding a molecule to avoid scheduling and regulation. But it's very, it's a really difficult law to litigate and it's not used all that frequently. And then there's really good arguments when it comes to cannabis and these creative compounds um, that go both ways. So people are arguing that, hey, hemp was derived, you know, hemp was excluded from the definition of marijuana. I made my Delta 8, a, started at CBD, which was naturally produced CBD. And therefore, it doesn't matter what happens throughout the rest of the production train. It was derived from hemp. And um, there's arguments as a lawyer that you can make towards legality and illegality. What gives me, you know, cause for concern where is that the lack of testing on all of these highly processed, um, you know, compounds is that there's all sorts of new solvents and different chemicals used to get to the final product that we're just now really seeing standardized hemp testing in the classical form of hemp. Now we're adding all of these different sort of innovative manufacturing processes and extraction processes that we don't really know if we're getting all the solvents out of them. We don't know what, you know, residual chemicals are being left in there. And that's where it causes a lot of danger. Whereas, you know, natural cannabis, aside from pesticides, and if you're growing your own, you know, what's in it. And it just, there's a lot less variable there, but in states where you don't have access to natural cannabis and you can make the argument that, Hey, this, Delta 10 or Delta 8 
isn't controlled and it's legal, um, it's just really important that you know your uh, supplier and, and you're doing that diligence and you're able to read, you know, request the certificates of analysis and understand the manufacturing process, make sure they're licensed because um, you're putting it into your body. So it's, a, it's, I'm not against it, but I just think people should be careful because it's, um, it's just, it's a complex production process. Right. And definitely seems like a pretty, pretty risky business to be in, in terms of like with laws kind of changing or the possibility of a law changing. And then it's like your whole production of whatever product could just be, you know, at that point, completely illegal. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, like, in terms of, I'm not sure if you do like defend, uh, like individual like clients, like who may have, you know, been, uh, you know, they're being charged with possession of a psychedelic compound, say, um, you know, psilocybin or LSD. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, just, just like for the, the listeners to understand, like in most states that are, you know, not Colorado, not Oregon, but just a standard state where it's, you know, completely illegal. Um, what, what does someone usually face going through the legal system not not if they're selling it, but if they've just been charged, you know, they're they got arrested because they were found in possession of one of these psychedelic compounds. That's a great question. And it varies significantly state by state. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, Colorado and Oregon both have Oregon passed a decriminalization of simple possession law. So you got to look at the amounts there, but um, you know, it's it's just a I think a fine. And then Colorado just came into effect on its decriminalization provisions, which do not have a set limit, but they it's implied in um, the definition. So there is going to be a limit eventually, but there's no limit specified. But in all the other states, and once you get past that kind of decriminalized level, it varies significantly. So in some states like Texas, you can face jail time easily, regardless of how much you have. There are states where just like, you know, the residue in a pipe or the residue in a bag, that's enough, um, even if it's not like quantifiably weighable to send you to jail. And then, um, you know, there are other states that treat smaller amounts, so under an ounce typically, but it, it varies significantly from compound to compound as a, you know, misdemeanor versus a felony. But there are some states that have very, very low possession limitations for what's considered a misdemeanor between a felony. And then um, they take different approaches with how they weigh compounds. So some may count, um, you know, not just the amount of psilocybin in the chocolate bar, but the whole weight of the chocolate bar. And that gets into tricky situations too, where you don't think that you have a lot, but because you're weighing all of the kind of medium that goes with it to take the compounds, it ends up being a, a lot more when it comes to a possession. So I can't answer that question specifically, but it is really important to look it up in wherever you live at the state level because it varies significantly. And even in these localities where it is decriminalized or deprioritized, you're not likely to get arrested. But if you do get arrested, you know, the consequences can be severe. And that's the truth in even like California and places where it's a pretty liberal law enforcement approach but the statutory penalties for engaging in 
you know, the possession of a controlled substance are, are pretty severe. So, um, yeah, I would say take a look at your laws wherever you live and um, be thoughtful about that. It seems pretty crazy to me that it's like, you know, we're we're living in a time where it's like there's now, you know, these like psychedelic conferences, Wonderland and, um, you know, Canadelic that I, I mentioned in Miami, um, you know, where it's like this big movement of people that are all interested in, you know, talking about psychedelics and the benefits. Um, but then it's like still the, the legal uh, side of things is like so far behind the times, you know, it, it seems like it's just it, it just seems strange. It is, um, but we're undoing, you know, 50 plus years of misinformation and propaganda and and sort of just the political dynamics that were at play back then. And so it takes a lot of education and effort and, you know, volunteer hours to get people to change their mind about this type of stuff. And luckily we have states, about half of them that have ballot initiative processes. So not even, every state doesn't even have an option to get a bunch of really passionate volunteers and um, you know petition across the state to make change that they want. Um, so that's, you know, in some states you have to go to the legislature and that can even be a tougher battle. So it's just our structures in place to change laws are, are difficult. And then on top of that, drug policy reform just seems to continue to not be a priority for legislators, even though, you know, the mental health of America is the worst it's ever been. And um, we are sort of at the precipice of really revolutionizing psychiatry here with these natural compounds, but we also have a lot of education and data and, and, you know, kind of just general mindset change that we have to accomplish throughout the United States to make significant change here. And I think with that, it's also really important to, um, value your role in this movement, whether you're attending these conferences, speaking at them, helping to advocate, um, talking about your experience, you know, we're just now getting to a point where people are going to have sort of um, self-regulated access to some of these compounds. So it's important that we are good role models for the movement so we don't stop it before it really takes off. And we're just about there. So I think this is awesome that you're having this podcast and asking these questions because it, it is really, really important. Right, right. And hopefully we won't, you know, hopefully the what happened in, you know, the whatever 60s, 70s um, in terms of psychedelic criminalization, hopefully we've learned the lessons from that and don't repeat them for this, you know, psychedelic renaissance that's occurring now. Courtney, what would you say in terms of like the projects going forward uh, that you're most excited about or just what should people know in terms of uh, psychedelic legalization movements in the, the coming years? Sure. So as I mentioned, 17 cities, San Francisco is the most recent one. I think Berkeley is going to be up if it hasn't already um, soon. So that local grassroots movement is really continuing to take place. If you know you know, my big call to action is is really to talk about your experience. So if you've had a, a medicinal experience, therapeutics, creative, spiritual, fun time, you know, talk about your experience because that's how we're going to remove stigma. But I also want people to understand how, you know, little, as difficult as policy change can seem, if you know a district attorney or the chief of police or a city council member in whatever town size or city size you live in, those types of connections can really make a difference. Even in um, Michigan, 
you know, we had one district attorney, I think in Washington County that said, Hey, I'm not just send an email or send a policy statement out saying, you know, I'm not going to prioritize and force against possession of psychedelics. They never passed any resolution or anything, but that has huge impact and it's just an email and, you know, just getting different people to come out and say, Hey, this isn't a priority or, Hey, this is how I, you know, I'm okay or non-opposed. Um, we could make impact really quickly. So that's kind of just my call to action there. But as far as what's going on across the United States to keep an eye on, Oregon, as I mentioned, is opening up their licensing applications for the first ever state legal psilocybin access program. And Colorado just passed in November of this 2022, and that will be going through the implementation process over the next couple of years. So if you're interested in you know, getting involved with the regulatory process, now is the time to sort of start looking at that. And then New York just introduced a bill or reintroduced um, to decriminalize and you know legalize in some cases uh, natural medicine. So ibogaine, I you know DMT, psilocybin, etc. Which that has a lot of cool provisions in it and will be interesting to watch. And then California is also back on um, back in play with its bill from Senator Weiner to decriminalize. Um, broad scope psychedelics with certain limitations and that almost passed in 2021 but hopefully we will be able to get it done in 2023 but all across the country this will be a really big year for psychedelics and there's even the potential that MDMA you know the MAPS program gets their green light to submit their drug application um, I think they're have finished or wrapping up their phase three clinical trials and are just waiting on that last approval so that could be a big domino effect as well for showing that we're starting to hit those big benchmarks. Yes, definitely an exciting time. Well, Courtney, we're coming up onto the end of the show. So for people uh, who really enjoyed our conversation, where can people connect with you or find out more about your work? Sure. So if you're interested in just connecting with me or asking any questions personally, my Instagram is cbgoes underscore global. And then if you're interested in the regulatory space or business or corporate, you know, transactions in cannabis or psychedelics, um, please look at feldmanlegaladvisors.com. That's my um, law firm website. And so you can reach me at either platform. Perfect. All right. Great. And then for the listeners, um, if you guys want to watch the uh, video form of the podcast, that'll be on our YouTube channel, NeuroFlex on YouTube. Um, but if you prefer listening to the audio, you can check the podcast out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just about any other major audio streaming platform. So Courtney, again, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Of course, absolutely. It was my pleasure, Toby. Thank you.